Okay, let's get started. I will pray for us as we start. Uh, Father, thank you for your love for us. Um, We need your Holy Spirit. I need your Holy Spirit just to teach this class. And as we look back at the second century church, Lord, we want to learn from them uh, how they responded to accusations, how they responded to threat, how they responded to rumors. We need to learn from them so that we can do the same in our day and in our culture. And so would you help us to learn tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we finally leave the Apostolic Fathers behind and we move to a group of people known as the Apologists. And the Apologists date roughly between 150 and 300 A.D. And as with all these uh, dates in in church history, they're flexible and movable. We're going to look at... At the Apostolic Fathers, I'm not, see, I'm still stuck on the Apostolic Fathers. We're going to look at the Apologist in more detail next week. Uh, Tonight, we're just going to set the stage for what was happening and what led them to respond with their writings. And here's what the Apologists are dealing with. There are charges and there are accusations that are being leveled against Christians, against the church in the second and third centuries, to which this group known as the Apologists respond. And they write these letters to leaders and emperors explaining uh, how they have misunderstood Christianity and how they have misunderstood what Christians believe. And so tonight we're just going to look at the four charges and kind of lay the groundwork. And then next week we'll look at some of the apologists and look at some of their writings and what they actually wrote to these emperors in Rome. The first charge that is brought against uh, Christians in this time, believe it or not, Uh, is the charge of atheism. The Christians, as far as the Roman Empire is concerned, they are a bunch of atheists. They're atheistic. And the reason that Christians are being called atheists is because the Roman culture is built around the gods. There's this plethora of gods. There's many, many gods in Roman culture and life. And so the worship of these gods and the involvement of all of these gods is actually woven into the fabric of society. And so when this new group group called, there's a fly in here, there's, please, Uh, when this new group of Christians pop up, they fear that their beliefs and who they are and how they live will actually make the gods angry and that the gods will retaliate against this monotheism. So the, worship, the Romans worshipped many gods. It was just a part of their society from the Roman games that they had to what happened in their Colosseums when they threw people to the lions to the temples where they worshipped to social events to activities. Everything was connected to and everything involved this pantheon of gods. And so when Christianity begins expanding and you have this relatively new religious group come on the scene and they speak of their worship of and their belief in only one God, this monotheism, in contrast to the many gods, then the Romans get very suspicious because this monotheism, this worship of one God makes them very uncomfortable because they fear that the gods will retaliate in anger and bring curses down upon society. So to the Romans, this was atheism. If there are many gods and you come along and say there's just one God, well to them that's atheism. Atheism is the disbelief in God or many gods. You know, uh, many times when you put an A on the front of a word, it, it negates it. And so the word Greek word for God is theos. So atheism is not God. There's no belief in God. And this is what the Romans were charging Christians with. Because they did not believe in many gods. And so to dismiss the many gods in favor of just one God... That was considered atheism. 
Now, you may be wondering, how in the world did the Romans put up with the monotheism of the Jews? Because the Jews just worshipped Yahweh. So if the Romans saw the belief in one God only and worship of one God only as atheism, then how did they put up with Jews? How did they put up with Judaism? Well, here's why. That fly, if it keeps landing on me, I don't care. All right. So I did shower right before I came here. So here's why. Because Judaism was an old, ancient religion. It had been around for a very long time. It's not a new kid on the block like Christianity. And so the Romans put up with the antiquity of Judaism because if there was anything that the Romans valued, it was antiquity. The older something was, then the better. The more ancient something was, then the more valuable. That's what the Romans thought. They loved vintage stuff. They loved retro stuff. And so the problem with the Christian religion is that it's new to them. It's novel. It hasn't been on the scene for very long. It hasn't stood the test of time. It's the new kid on the block. And so the Romans accepted the monotheism of Jews because of antiquity, but Christianity was just some new novel religion. And so this is the first charge that is brought against Christians in the second century, that they are atheists. But Please understand, the Romans were very religious people. Religion was a part of everything that they did. If you had a birthday party for your kid in your backyard for your little girl and you invited all her little friends over, you better believe the gods were involved in some way. If you went to Chick-fil-A, the gods were involved in some way. Everything in Roman culture involved the gods. And there were many gods. So when Christianity begins to spread... The Romans are bothered by it, like I'm bothered by this fly, (laughs) and and persecution and therefore charges are brought against the church. The second accusation and charge that's brought against Christians in the second and third century is that they are antisocial. The second charge is brought is that they are antisocial. Christians are not good, upstanding members of society, they said. They don't go to the games. They don't go to the Colosseums. They don't visit the temples. They don't go to the feasts and celebrations that we have. They isolate themselves from the rest of society. Frankly, the Romans said that Christians don't play well with others in the sandbox or on the playground. They retreat into their own little huddles. They have their own meetings, have these private cliques that they're a part of. And so this is what... Romans thought of Christians in the second century and on into the third that they're antisocial. And so the Roman culture maybe perhaps pictured it this way. And it is how some Christians act today. It was like the Christians were on some island off the shore, off the mainland. And society was on the mainland. And these Christians kept their distance. They could see each other from one another's beach. And they could yell at each other, but those Christians are just out there on their own little island and they want nothing to do with us. And that's how the culture perceived the church in the second century. And perhaps it was true in some pockets. I don't know. I'm sure most of it was not true. But knowing Christians and having been in the church a long time, some Christians might have secluded themselves away from the world. Because that's just what Christians do, right? We like to isolate ourselves, don't we? Because we don't want to get contaminated. Forgetting the fact that we all have a sinful heart, don't we? So we like to stay on our island sometimes as Christians. And we see the pagans off on the mainland. And we're just off the shore. And we like to yell at them, don't we? Y'all are being bad. You better stop doing bad. You better repent. And then we go back into our little huts on the beach. And then we come out again and we yell at the pagans on the, la- on the land. You better repent and believe in God. And then we go back into our little huts and we drink our non-alcoholic pina coladas like we're living on Gilligan's Island. <laughs> Instead of building a bridge to the mainland to live among the people and share the hope of our calling and share the hope of the gospel. Instead, we just rather yell at them from far away, safe on our, our own little beach. 
Instead of living among the world and getting to know people and correcting their false understanding of who we are and what we do and what we believe and loving them and praying for them, we'd rather yell at them and then run run, hide away in our little beach hut. We'd rather boycott things, wouldn't we? Because we're really good at that, aren't we? There's anything Christians in the Western world are good at is boycotting things. See, being distinctively Christian does not mean living on an island away from the mainland and yelling at people, yelling at pagans, yelling at unbelievers from our safe little beach and our safe little beach house. This is one of the problems of evangelical Christianity in the West. And so what do we do? We come up with our own little yellow pages, don't we? So you can go find a Christian mechanic. We come up with our own little segregated communities where we can hide from the world. We have our own Christian bands, don't we? Because we don't want to go to their concerts. I'm not against Christian bands, by the way. (laughs) But our typical reaction is what? Hide away in our own little bubble, do our own little thing. And so we make Christian this and we make Christian that. I've actually seen Christian mints to help freshen your breath. (laughs) They're called... Believe it or not, if you haven't seen these things, they're actually called testaments. Somebody thought that up and they thought this was the most clever thing in the world. What's wrong with Tic Tacs? Why can't we use Tic Tacs? We've got to do better than this. 21st century evangelicalism is more guilty of the hideout on my own isolated beach than the 2nd century was. But that's the way that many Romans saw Christianity. And here's one of the main reasons why. Because Christians, as we saw the last several weeks, Christians only allowed those who were baptized to eat the Lord's Supper in the 2nd and 3rd centuries. And they had their own little meetings. So they saw the church as a new clique who were not part of nor interested in the world. Okay, questions or comments before we look at the next two accusations? True, but somewhat wrong, right? We have to go out into the world and Jesus said, what? If they hated you, they'll hate me. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having our own special groups where we get together, having our own small groups. But typically, I think Christians are stay away from the world. Don't go out there. Don't get to know anybody. And let's just come over here instead of being the salt and the light that we're called to be. Otherwise, there's just darkness out there, right? Paul had yeah. admonished that with Corinthians, I believe. You know, I, I told you not to be, you have to be in the world, but not of the world. Yeah. I mean, so they were doing it back then. But yeah. yeah, it was interesting when, when Danielle was teaching second grade, people used to ask her you know, why she wasn't doing private school. And her point was, Christians have got to be in the secular schools or kids aren't going to you know, have a chance to see what Christians look like. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, sorry, uh, you were saying uh, Christians of uh, the other church wouldn't allow new believers to partake of the Lord's Supper be, uh, unless what? Unless they were baptized. baptized. Yeah, they had to be baptized, and they had to actually before that they had to go through month, weeks or months of preparation, being taught Christian doctrine. Then they were brought before the church body, and they had to affirm questions: Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Do you believe in the Triune God? And after they gave affirmation of these, then they were baptized, and then they would eat the Lord's Supper. That's how they did it in the second and third centuries. And it wasn't just sprinkling; it was full immersion. It was full immersion, but if you didn't have Water, they said you could take a pitcher and pour out three times. So those who are all about only immersion, it's like, well, in the early church, they said you could take a pitcher and pour out three times. They actually preferred cold water. Said this, if you've got cold water, if you're going to do it at all, you've got to do it in cold water. Because cold water represents the refreshing benefits of the gospel. So, yeah, in, back then, that was a prerequisite for the Lord's Supper. I'm thinking those second century Christians probably had some family history from great-great-great-grandpa talking about some pretty horrible persecutions with the Roman citizenry considering the slaughter of Christians as entertainment. 
So maybe we should give them a little bit of slack, even though theologically it was probably based on some things that the early fathers said that were misleading on doctrine. But from a social standpoint, it must have been very difficult for people yeah. to be living knowing that your great-great-grandfather may have watched my great-great-grandfather be killed. Yeah. And well, for them, martyrdom was discipleship. So they're coming on the heels of the apostles. They're coming on Peter and Paul, knowing they were martyred. This is all they've known is that this is what happens to us, which is part of the reason why they go through all this training and preparation before baptism, because they want you to know this is what it means to follow Jesus, is that people will hate you with all of their guts, but you have to love them with all of your heart. And so it was built into discipleship then. And I think in the Western world, it's not. I don't think we emphasize that as much. It may be like, oh, somebody might make fun of you on Facebook. And we're like, oh, you know, an unbeliever made fun of me on Facebook. For them, it was like, I might die because I believe in Jesus. And so it really was a part of the, their culture and their church. Um, again, I'm not saying they isolated themselves in a bad way like Western evangelical Christianity was. That's just what the Romans were saying about them. They were very much involved and out there. But the Romans' understanding was, you guys just hide out on your own. And they were a part of the community and doing things. And that's what the apologists are going to write and say, you've got it all wrong. We're actually great members of society and we're very plugged in. But I think the contrast between them and how we are in the West today is that we tend to just hide out. I'm thinking of where Russ works. He had a Bible study, and they invited people to their Bible study, and it was appropriate. It was fine. And then they got so much flag that they had to leave and meet at a restaurant outside because it caused um, friction. Yeah, some yeah. people complained, and, mm -hmm. uh, and we just thought, you know what? In order to not yeah. create a bunch of conflict, there there was on some of the political correctness training that everybody had to go to. Someone brought it up. What about those Christians that are having a Bible study here? And fortunately, I knew the trainer, and she said, "I don't think that they meet here anymore." Yeah. So if they don't. Stir Part of that, trouble, I think, is just saying, "Okay, you yeah. know what." It's like it, it takes wisdom. It's like, I don't want to be a jerk about this. You know, some yeah. Christians would. It's like, we got to fight for our rights to stay. It's like, yeah. you know, don't be a jerk. I mean, very rarely does anyone come to Jesus because the person sharing the gospel with them is a jerk. Could it happen? Yeah, because the Holy Spirit's the one who gives faith. But typically, people are put off by that. So I think that takes wisdom to say, you know what? If you guys don't want us to meet her, that's okay. We'll go somewhere else. You know, we're okay with that. Um, you know, it takes wisdom to figure out when do you stand up and say something, and when do you not? It takes a lot of wisdom. It takes a lot of wisdom when you, for the second century church, because of what they were accused of. Next, the third accusation is that they were, I need to make sure I spell this correctly and get my I's and A's in the right place, was that they were cannibalistic. Third charge is that they were zombies who ate people, if you will. Now, where in the world... Do the Romans get this idea? So imagine what it would look like in the second century, maybe in, in Lyon, France, for example. The Roman Empire has expanded all the way to France, and the gospel has expanded too. And now you are living there in Lyon, France, and you come to believe in Jesus, the one true God. You are a Christian. And you're standing outside in your front yard and your wife is watering her flowers in her flower bed and your neighbor Marcus, who is not a Christian, begins to speak to you over the hedge of bushes that separates your front yards. And the conversation goes something like this. And I, I need a volunteer. Debbie and Dino, how about you guys? You don't have to stand up. I'm just going to use your names. I'm going to give you some very Roman-sounding names. We have now Dinous and Debius. No, you don't have to, I said you don't have to stand up. You're good. I just need your names. Because you're in, you're, you're in France, but there's this, this influence of Rome. And so Marcus is there, and Dinous and Debius are there. And this is the conversation that they're having with their pagan neighbor over uh, the, the bushes that separate their front yards. Marcus says, hey, how are y'all? You got any plans this weekend? And Dinoas says, not really, some yard work, and of course, church tomorrow. And Marcus says, oh, that's right. You guys are some of those, what do you call yourselves, Christians, is that it? You belong to that atheistic group, right? Y'all just worship that one God, right? 
And Debbie says, yes, Margaret, that's right. We only worship Jesus. And so Marcus says, what will we all do at your little meeting tomorrow? And they say, well, we'll sing songs and someone preaches a message. And we have this special meal that we all eat. Actually, we don't all eat it. Only those who have been baptized into water get to eat it. And Marcus says, oh, you're having a meal. I love a good meal. Can I come? I can bring my world-famous barbecue ribs. I know you like my ribs, Dinoas. And Dino says, actually, we don't all get to eat the meal. It's only for those who have been baptized who get to eat it. And so Marcus says, what's baptized? And you say, well, it's where you get dunked underwater by someone. It's kind of hard to explain. And Marcus says, so you mean y'all let someone dunk you underwater? Really? And only if you're dunked underwater can you eat this special meal? That's weird, bro. Tell me, what do you eat at this special meal? And you say, well, we pass these plates that have bread on them, and we also drink wine, and they represent the body and blood of our God, Jesus Christ. He told us in some of our writings, it's called the the Gospel of John, this writing that we have. He said that unless we eat his flesh and drink his blood, then we can have no part with him. I know it sounds a little strange, and Marcus says, yeah, that is strange. I think I'll pass on coming to your gotta get dunked or you can't eat like a zombie at our special meeting, religious meeting. I don't think I'll bring my world-famous barbecue ribs to your weird, atheistic, cannibalistic meal. I eat animals, not humans. That was what it was like for Christians living in the Roman Empire in the second century. The fact that the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist was only eaten by people who were baptized and who joined this new community. And the fact that thanks was given before this special meal of bread and wine, which represented The body and blood of Jesus. And the fact that Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, then you can't belong to me. Well, all of this made Romans in the second century think that Christians were crazy. That Christians had lost their marbles. That they were atheists who ate people. They were cannibals. They were zombies. They were very suspicious at what went on behind closed doors at these places called churches where these Christians met to worship their only one God. In fact, there were actually rumors circulating that Christians ate babies at these private meetings. Because Christians talked about the incarnation of Jesus, because they talked about the virgin birth, because they talked about how God became a baby, then what happens behind those closed doors must be that they actually eat babies and eat small children. See, the Romans are hearing this. From Christians, they're hearing about the incarnation, how Jesus became a baby. So they're, they're dialoguing and correcting what the world believes, but the world takes what they're hearing and the world twists that. And so see, these are some of the rumors floating around on Facebook in the second century in Rome. How surprising. Can you believe this? Rumors being spread about Christians. Can you believe that people actually misrepresent Christianity? Can you believe that people actually misunderstand what Christians believe? I've never heard of this thing before. It must have been a problem that was very unique to the second century. We'll talk more about this later and about why this is and about why unbelievers cannot understand and grasp these truths. And we'll discover that reason and reasoning with unbelievers is not helpful at all. In fact, it has no place at all. I'll give you one hint as to why you cannot reason a believer into the kingdom of God. Because they are dead spiritually. And unless the Holy Spirit gifts them faith, gives them faith, unless the Holy Spirit raises them up and makes them alive and regenerates them, unless the Holy Spirit opens their blind eyes, they can't see, they cannot be reasoned into the kingdom. Because you're not the Holy Spirit and I'm not the Holy Spirit. We can't make dead people get up, can we? We can't open up blind eyes. We can't use reason. We cannot use arguments to get spiritually dead people to come out of their graves. That's why your your neighbor named Marcus can't grasp what is happening in your church in the second century. You can't reason with Marcus to the point to where he would say, I believe. Why? Why? Because faith is a gift that the Holy Spirit gives. What does Paul say in Ephesians 2? You know this. It is by what you have been saved. Grace. 
It's by grace. It's a gift. It's the gracious gift of God. His unmerited favor. He bestows his favor upon dead sinners as a gift. The same word is used by Paul in Philippians when he says that we are gifted with salvation and what else? Suffering. Philippians 1.29, Paul says, For it has been granted to you, that's the word grace there, gifted to you, graced to you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And that's why you can't reason your neighbor Marcus into the kingdom. It's only as you preach the gospel to him that the Spirit comes and gives Marcus the gift of faith. Now, more a little bit later on how reason never grants regeneration. We'll talk about that in a moment. The fourth thing that they're being accused of, it gets worse, is incest. Fourth charge brought against Christians in the second century is that they are an incestuous people. They practice incest. They have sexual relations with people that they're related to. They actually marry their own brothers and marry their own sisters. So let's go back to your house in Lyon, France. It's the second century. And Dinoas walks out in the morning in his bathrobe to get the morning paper in his driveway. And Marcus, his neighbor, is there. You know, Marcus, who makes his world-famous barbecue ribs, he sees Dino, Dinoas, and the conversation goes like this. Marcus says, good morning. It looks like it's going to be a lovely day. How are you today, Dinoas? And Dinoas says, great. And it is a great day because me and my wife, Debius, we're celebrating our 10th wedding anniversary today. And Marcus says, congrats. That's great. Anna and I celebrated number eight back in February. Hey, listen. I know it's none of my business, Dinoas, but I've been thinking about what you said last time about your church. Is that what you call it? I've been thinking about some of the things y'all believe. And I heard some guys at the office talking about it too, about what you Christians believe. And I know this is personal and really none of my business, but it's been eating away at me. And since we had that conversation last week, indulge me, okay? Here goes. Is it true that y'all marry your own sisters? And marry your own brothers. Is your wife really your sister? And Dino says, no, she's not my sister. That's weird. What gave you that idea? And Marcus says, we all call each other brother and sister. And you told me once how she was your sister in Christ. Whatever in the world that means. And Dino says, oh, you misunderstand. Yes, I met my wife at church about 12 years ago. And before we got married, she was my sister in Christ. We were both in the college group back then. We are both one of God's adopted children now. So yeah, she was and is my sister in Christ, even though she's my wife. And I know that sounds weird, but no, she's not my sister's sister. And Marcus says, so you married your sister? Y'all marry your brothers and sisters? And you say, yes, but not our real sisters. We're Christians. And we only marry someone who is a brother or sister in Christ, another Christian. And I know that sounds weird, Listen, we only marry Christians because we are all adopted into God's family. We're family. We're brothers and sisters. But it's not, not like what you're thinking. That would be weird, Marcus, and very gross. And Marcus says, okay, I think I kind of understand. But that's not what's going around, man. People think you really married your sister. Julius across the street over there, he told me that you married your sister and y'all practice incest. That's just what's going around the neighborhood. And I thought I'd ask and let you know what people are thinking. That's what it was like to be a Christian in the second century. And so it's phrases and passages in the New Testament that Christians use for one another that give people this idea. The charge of incest comes from the terms used in Scripture like brother or sister. For instance, Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection. Romans 16, 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church. 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So where did three of those examples come from? They came from the book of Romans. 
So these were ideas and phrases that were being used by Christians for one another in the Roman Empire. And it created these accusations of incest against the church. And so when this kind of language and these phrases get out, then the charge quickly comes upon the church that they're involved with incest. Now we know that's not true, but that's how a watching world looks when we look at each other and call each other brother or sister. Christians were described this way in all the comment sections on Facebook. They are atheistic, they are antisocial, they are cannibals, and they practice incest. And because of all these false accusations and all these misunderstandings, this group known as the Apologists began writing letters to help clear this mess up. The Apologists rise up in order to help combat what Roman culture was saying about Christians and saying about the church. And so the Apologists write to uh, leaders, emperors, people in places of power in order to inform their culture, inform the Roman culture, inform their world about what Christians actually believe and what Christians actually do. What Christians in reality practice and what Christians in reality believe as opposed to what the surrounding culture and its critics actually said. And so the apologist would get on Facebook when somebody said, you know what I heard about these Christians? They're cannibalistic and they're antisocial. And so the apologist would get on Facebook and say, hey, we're not atheists. In fact, we are the truest of theists. And then they would make an argument as to why Christians were actual theists and not atheists. They'd say things like, listen, we're not antisocial. We're some of the most caring people in society. We care for our city. We pick up trash on the side of the highways. We help the homeless. We work regular jobs in the marketplace. We love our neighbors. We turn the other cheek. We value the unborn. We take care of widows. We look out for our neighbors. We're not antisocial. We're the most social, most socially compassionate people that you could ever imagine. In fact, next week we'll look at Justin Martyr who writes to an emperor and is defending and and wants to speak against sex trafficking and what people want to do with little kids. And Justin Martyr writes to an emperor and says, this stuff is wrong. And so they would get on Facebook and they would say things like, no, we're not cannibalistic, you goofball. That's gross. We don't eat people. This special meal that we eat called the Eucharist is one where we celebrate the presence of our God as we eat and drink. And we celebrate that he became a man like us and he died in our place on the cross by giving up his life, giving up his body, giving up his blood. We're not eating babies. We're not eating flesh and drinking blood. That's gross. We eat bread and drink wine, which symbolizes his body and blood. And finally, they get on Facebook in the comment sections and say, hey, and no, we are not incestuous. That's really gross. We live in communities which are tightly knit together and we love each other so much that it's like we're a family. We are a family. It's a family love. We love each other like a brother does or a sister does. We love like family because we are family. We're all God's own children who have been adopted into his family. Therefore, we are brothers and sisters, but not in the way that you think. And so this was apologetics in the second century. Questions or comments on any of these things? So when did the church come uh, start believing that the blood and the wine were actual body? I don't know when it actually... Okay, so it wasn't... It could have been in this time. I don't know. I don't know um, when it started. At least Luther, I think, held that. But but they could have believed that beforehand. And sometimes you read the writings, like we read the last couple weeks, it kind of sounds like what they're saying. Like even It even sounds like in the writings, when they talk about baptism, that it sounds like regeneration actually takes place in baptism but they didn't believe that so mm-hmm. i don't know when it actually okay. started it wouldn't surprise me if it started very early even in the first century uh, where somebody would 
Christians are known to take passages and make weird interpretations out of them. So it wouldn't surprise me if someone heard, because they didn't have a copy of the scriptures, they heard Jesus say, this is my body, this is my blood. They heard Jesus say, unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh. So I wouldn't be surprised if there was some little sect that took that early on and said, this is actually his body and his blood. You know, it has, the, the elements have been transformed into them. I wouldn't be surprised if it happened early, but I don't know the answer. Yeah, you know, probably started earlier, but it was um, one of the folks, and I forget which one, who, who actually stated the transubstantiation thing. Yeah, and that's going to come a little bit later from, from here. Because uh, we're still dealing with the time. Remember, we're dealing with, with bishops. The bishops are the people who took over after Peter and Paul and James and John who were you know, ordained by them. And so we're still in that era where we have these bishops who are still connected to that. Now, that will eventually change later on, I think, into the I'm thinking third and fourth century and fifth where it starts splitting off. And, of course, if, if the blood is actually, or the wine is his blood and the wafer is his body, but I guess you could say that they were cannibals. Yeah. If, if it is literally that, then you would say that. Yeah. So you can imagine how these rumors would kind of spread. Or somebody overhears, somebody, overhears someone at Starbucks talking about it. Oh, yeah, we celebrated communion and, you know, drank his body and blood. What did they just say? Those Christians drink somebody's blood and eat his body so you could see how rumors would spread and so that's what the apologists come in and they're going to say okay we're going to put an end to this we want to clear the air and so that is what the apologists in the second century doing and that's what apologetics for them is not the apologetics that we have come to know today what is apologetics it comes from the greek word apollo which means speaking in defense. In, in classical Greek, in the legal system, the prosecution delivered what was called the categoria, the accusation or the charge against someone, and then the defendant would reply with what was called the apologia or the defense. And so the apologia was a formal speech or an explanation to reply to and to rebut those charges. And then in Koine Greek, in the time of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul employs this term apologia in his trial uh, with Festus and Agrippa when he says, I make my defense in Acts chapter 26. In fact, Paul uses a cognate form of it in Philippians chapter 1 when he says he's defending the gospel. He's, he's replying to these charges. 1 Peter 3.15 uh, Peter uses it to say when you give an answer. And so the kind of apologetics that's happening in the second century is different from the kind of apologetics that you might be familiar with. Because the apologetics that you are probably familiar with came about because of the rise of rationalism in the 18th century. Rationalism in the 18th century. What is rationalism in philosophy? Rationalism is the epistemological view that uh, reason is the chief source in the test of knowledge. And any view appealing to reason as the source of knowledge or justification. So more formally, rationalism is defined as a methodology or a theory in which the criterion of truth is not sensory but intellectual and deductive, meaning you hear and you read about facts and you deduce from those facts that this is true. And so 20th and 21st century apologetics as we know it today came about in response to the rise of rationalism in the 18th century. And so apologetics, as you might know it, looks like this. Reason leads to faith. If I can just prove my points and make my claims with this unbeliever, then that will switch the gears in their mind and they will then get faith and believe. This kind of apologetics that we're used to looks like this. Understanding leads to faith. 
And you don't believe anything that you don't understand. And you don't believe anything that isn't reasonable. And you don't believe anything that isn't logical. And you don't believe anything that doesn't make sense. You don't believe anything that doesn't have evidence behind it. You don't believe anything that doesn't have evidence that demands a verdict. Are you familiar with that book by Josh McDowell? I got a funny story about Josh McDowell. When I was in seminary working at Starbucks, it's like 6 a.m. in the morning, still trying to wake up. He comes in, and I recognize him. And he orders this drink, like a mocha or something. And I'm making his drink, and he starts giving me a hard time. And I'm sitting there thinking, I know who this guy is. And he starts just kind of ribbing me and, and making comments and commenting about my hair and my day and what I'm doing. And it's taking so long and all this. And I'm just like, I can't believe Josh McDowell is doing this. And so he's standing there at the bar just nonstop. And I'm thinking, geez, even if you weren't Josh McDowell, it's six o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and so when I go to have him his drink, I say, tall mocha. And he says, I hope it's good. And I said, well, that's evidence that demands a verdict. <laughs> his face just went white. <laughs> and he's like, uh, and I said, it's Okay. <laughs> Lesson learned, you never know where you're going to be and who knows you. So apologetics in the 20th and the 21st centuries has come to be understood as trying to convince someone that Christianity is true purely on reasonable or logical or rational grounds. That's not what apologetics looks like in the second century. That's not what this group known as the apologists are doing. Why? Because these people aren't moderns yet, are they? You've got to wait until the 18th century for rationalism to surface before you have this huge optimistic faith in reason. Reason as the prince of always validating if something is true. So rationalism has so infected 21st century evangelicalism that we believe that reason determines if something is true. But remember, as we saw last week, we are a people of faith, not reason. We're a people of faith. That's why Martin Luther said, reason is a whore, the greatest enemy faith has. Reason is a whore and will sleep with anyone. Reason will hop in bed with anyone. Christianity is about faith. It's about believing. It's about trusting the testimony of the apostles and prophets as recorded in God's word. And so you can't reason to persuade someone to believe the gospel. You can't use reason to explain the Trinity, just like we saw last week. Some people say, well, then how in the world do I explain the Trinity to a six-year-old? If I can't use reason... If I can't use analogies, then how in the world do I explain the Trinity to my six-year-old? Well, let me ask you, as I did last week, how in the world do you explain the Trinity to a 30-year-old? Any differently? No, you do it the same. You simply tell them what God's Word says about the Trinity, about His Trinitarian nature, and you call on them to believe it. As we saw last week, the same God that can give you faith to believe in the Gospel... The same God that gave you faith to believe that Jesus went to the cross and died and was raised from the dead three days later, that same God can give you faith to believe in the Trinity. Not that we don't discuss these things and have conversations with people, but you can't reason anyone to believe something. That's rationalism, and it does not play well with the gospel. See, we are thoroughly influenced by the rationalism of the 18th century. We just can't get it out of our clothes. Our clothes are stained with it. We live in a culture that says, don't believe anything unless it is rational, rational, sensible, logical, and makes sense. And so many people today try to test Christianity by reason. However, the scriptures must test reason. Scripture must be elevated above reason. And so in the second century, you still have to wait 1,600 years to go before you get to rationalism 
And so for the second century Christian, they wouldn't know what to do with a book by Josh McDowell. Or what to do with a book by the Bible Answer Man, Hank Hanegraaff. Or what to do with a book by Ravi Zacharias. Apologetics in the second century is merely explaining to culture about what is distinctively Christian and what is not. Apologetics in the second century is correcting the culture's view of you when they got it wrong. Apologetics in the second century is taking time to clarify what Christianity is and what Christianity isn't. And it's not the belief and practice that reason and rationality and persuasion and understanding and logic is the basis and only substantial basis of faith. You have to wait for the 18th century for that stuff to show up. Apologetics was not like this in the second century. So the apologists are not out to persuade anyone. They're not out to change the culture's mind. Their job was to just help clear the air on what Christianity was. And what Christianity wasn't. Apologetics in the second century is merely about explaining to the culture about what is distinctively Christian and what is not. It was about correcting the culture's view of you and what you believed when they got it wrong. And so the apologists are not out to reason people into the kingdom. They knew that's the Spirit's job. So they just... Preach the gospel, which they do in their their letters that they write to these emperors. They do. They let them know. They preach the gospel and they let the spirit do all the regenerating. They weren't trying to do that through reason. One more second here, Russ. So did they have conversations with people? Yes. But their main job was preach the gospel and clear up what uh, Christians really believe and dispel those rumors. Yeah, it's kind of interesting looking at uh, 1 Peter 3.15 where it's the apologetics verse there. But in your hearts, honor Christ as uh, Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason. So even in our translations, we have a word. Yeah, and what does it say? A reason for what you... For the hope that is in you. For the hope that you have. And so... And yet do it with gentleness yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I, I think rationalism has infected our translations because we see these. Not again. Not that there's not conversations, but their goal was not. I can, if I can just get the facts right, then someone will believe. Because have you ever shared the gospel with someone and like you hit it out of the park? Like you answered all their questions, you said everything right. You're like, in, in the moment you're thinking, oh my goodness, this is going so well. They're answering all these questions, I'm responding, I'm sharing the gospel with them. You get to the end, they're like, ah, I don't want to believe that. <gasps> Why? I did everything right. You know, the one thing I will say though, maybe is, evidence that man's a verdict had a huge impact on my Christian life. Because yeah. I came to faith. And, and I got, I was led by the Holy Spirit, the whole shebang. Yeah. But that book grounded me yeah. in what I believed. And I was able to then say, I haven't left into the darkness or made a stupid yeah. suicidal decision. There's some reason behind yeah. it. all this stuff. And if, if, if the scriptures were full of contradictions, I'm sorry, throw it away. Yeah. If that's God's word and it's got contradictions all the way through it, I don't think I walk with Christ. Yeah, absolutely. Hold on to that thought because we're going to get there because it's exactly, that's how apologetics is useful to the church, but not to the world. So hold on to that thought. We're going to get there. Perfect. Exactly. Okay. So Christianity is ultimately about believing what the apostle of the prophet has said about God, about his son in his word. So remember, we're people of faith. We take the testimonies of the apostles and prophets and we say, this is what we believe. And that has to inform our understanding of what apologetics is. So I'm okay with the apologetics of the second century, it's the modern day idea of evangelical apologetics that I struggle with because the modern day idea of evangelical apologetics is that what we know has been thoroughly influenced by rationalism. Here's what one of my church history professors, Dr. Jeff Bingham, says. He says, whether it's pre-modern, modern, modern, or post-modern, 
Apologetics needs to be distinctively Christian, and rationalism has never been distinctively Christian. Rationalism, rational, rationalism is pagan. So for the Christian apologetics to ever become rationalistic was a departure from that which is distinctively Christian. It's a joining of the pagan world's criteria rather than the Christian criteria. And so the kind of apologetics that we know of today has a place, but it's not out there in the world where it can somehow be used to convert someone. Its place is within the church, like Carl will say. And reason may have a place in the church to those who are already believing. So as Carl said, when I became a Christian, I read evidence that demands a verdict, and that helps solidify what I believe, but I don't take that book and try to have an unbeliever read it and say, read this and you can come into the kingdom. So you don't, do not believe, you don't bring an unbelieving person to the, to the faith through reason. You do that through the gospel, right? Because if you do bring someone to faith through reasoning, what you end up doing is converting a bunch of rationalists who believe. And now you have a bunch of people who think rationally, but they have totally missed the point of faith, which is simply to take the apostle or the prophet in God's word at their word and to believe it's true. And so what happens when you get all these rationalists in the church is they get discipled into thinking that you don't believe anything unless it makes sense. You don't believe anything unless you are provided a rationalist basis for that belief. And so if you use the 20th and 21st century approach to apologetics in your evangelism, then that's who you bring into the church. You've made a disciple who only believes what is reasonable and only believes what is rational and only believes what is logical. And so then when you have people like that, how do they respond to a passage like Ephesians 5.22, which says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So if you disciple someone on rationalism, how do they respond to that verse? They say, well, that doesn't seem rational or reasonable. Why do I have to do that? Or since we've quoted a bunch of Ephesians tonight, let's, let's stay in that book. Ephesians 4.32. How does a rationalist respond to this? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. They say, why should I do that? That guy offended me. I'm supposed to forgive him? That's not rational. That doesn't make sense. That's not logical. And that's what 21st century apologetics gets when you use it in evangelism. Nothing is to be believed. Nothing is to be obeyed unless it makes sense. And you can see where this goes with the issue of marriage then, can't you? In our culture. And sexuality and gender, which is why you have people who are Christians who are changing their viewpoint. Because according to culture, it doesn't make sense, does it? It's not logical, it's not reasonable that we, we would be so narrow-minded about marriage and narrow-minded about sexuality and narrow-minded about gender. And so for people who are rationalists, sooner or later, they will take what culture says about marriage and sexuality and gender and they will disregard what God's Word says because to them, it doesn't make sense. It's not logical. It's not rational. And then once you get them hooked on rationalism, it's very hard to get them weaned off. Because what you birth them with and what you nurse them on is what they will use throughout their whole life. And so, back to Carl's point, doing apologetics and using reason does have a place, but it's in the church, not out there in the world. And certainly not to be used in evangelism. And so here's how you use apologetics in the church. You minister to people who believe. People who are believers, and you explain to them why what they have believed from the apostles and prophets in God's word, why that makes sense, why it's not unreasonable, why what they have believed complements the brain that God has given them. It's like what Pastor James does across the hall there with the youth group every Sunday night in his apologetics class. He's teaching our students and our teenagers, that what they believe is true and here's reasons why. He's giving them informed reasons why what they believe is true. And so what you don't want to do is let reason lead you to faith. Instead, faith should lead to reason. Faith should lead to understanding and not the other way around.
And so, how many of you know more and understand better now than when you first believed? How many of you believed a long time ago that Jesus lived and died for you and God raised him from the dead, but now you understand it much better? That's what we're looking for. That's the role of reason and understanding that we should be comfortable with, not the other way around. Why? Because as we looked at last week, tell me, what's rational about what I'm about to read to you? What's logical? What makes sense about this? The sovereign God who spoke the world into existence becomes a human being in a humble manner where he has to have his diaper changed and he sucks milk out of his mother's breast and is dependent on her milk to survive another day. And he lives a life of relative obscurity for 33 years. He then gets arrested one day. He gives no defense, no argument, no apology. And he allows himself to be nailed to a cross for something that he didn't do. And he didn't call on a myriad of angels who could have come to his defense. And then he willingly dies. And then three days later, he's alive and he walks back out of the grave and he starts showing up at his friends' friends' houses unannounced and uninvited. And then he floats up into the air and he's going to come back that way again. Tell me, does that make sense? Do you expect that to make sense to a pagan who is dead in their sins? Or what about this? We believe in one God eternally existing in three persons. Just one God Three persons. Does that make sense? Do you expect that to make sense to a pagan who is dead in their sins? And so you can't reason someone to believe that. And if you try, you'll get frustrated after your perfect evangelism falls flat and they don't believe. And so what you don't want to do is let reason lead you to faith. Instead, faith should lead to reason. Faith should lead to understanding. Here's how Augustine said it. Dost thou wish to understand? Believe. For God has said by thy prophet, except ye believe, ye shall not understand. Therefore, this is one of his famous quotes. Therefore, do not seek to understand in order to believe, but believe that thou mayest understand. Since, except ye believe, ye shall not understand. So Christians believe that we may understand. We don't understand so that we may believe. Why? Because we're people of faith. To understand so that you may believe, that stuff, that kind of nonsense doesn't pop up until the 18th century with rationalism. And our clothes and our churches still reek of it. And so here's what we can recapture and learn from the apologists. And then we'll open up some questions if you have any. We can and should interact with our world and tell them what we distinctively believe as Christians. This is what we believe. And we'll have to point out that there are some weirdos out there who call themselves Christians. And they may be our brothers and sisters in Christ. And they believe some weird things. But this is definitely what we believe. And so we have to correct the world's opinion and what it is of the church and what it is that Christians distinctively believe. Questions or comments? I was teaching uh, English as a second language class to Japanese um, wives to businessmen. And um, the purpose was to lead them to Christ, right? So we memorized Bible verses and remember the gospel. Right? And they're okay with that because they're so polite. They'll, they're just polite in front of you. Some, the one that, a woman came up to me and she said, we'll be polite in front of you, but we'll be thinking bad thoughts about you. Because that's our culture. And then she went on to tell me more about her culture, about how it's okay to have mistresses and the mistress becomes friends with the, with the wife and all this, right? And then um, I said, but do you like it that way? What does your heart say? Because you memorized this, you re- you've already memorized the scriptures about unity Christ. What does your heart say? Well, my heart says there's no such thing as sin because there is not a Japanese word for sin. And I said, but tell me, do you really think you're that good, Kasuko? No, I'm not. Okay, then Then you do believe in sin. And it's only by you putting your faith in Jesus Christ will you be saved. Anyways, she said, I'm going to think about that. Now, this is a woman that had a doctorate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And who, how could you rationalize? She had a second grade knowledge of English, but she had a doctorate. So how do you rationalize with her? You don't. 
yeah. I had to keep pointing her to the cross. Yes. And eventually, she did come to know Christ as yeah. her Savior, but it was it, yeah. It took a couple of years. Yeah. And then you start explaining, hey, you've heard me talk about Adam and Eve. Let's go back there. You start reinforcing. This is what you believe. Now let me show you why. In fact, you know, I think Awana, Heather and I were talking about this week. We were looking something up. I think Awana has changed one of their programs. They have something called Truth Seekers now. And I think it's like a four-year program. And I think, to the best that I could research on it, I think they've changed it up because they realize as an outreach, if you have little kids coming in and they're hearing, learn this verse, and they talk about Adam and Eve, and they're like, I don't even know who that is. And so they want to start with a, a four-year program where they can build on that foundation. So, Because we in the church take that stuff for granted. We just, oh yeah, yeah. My kids know that, those stories. But to someone on the outside coming in, they may be clueless. What do you mean Jesus died on the cross for me? I just memorized that verse. When I was an enemy, Christ died for me. I don't even know what the word enemy is, and I don't know who Christ is, and I don't know why he would die for me. So it, it takes building on that um, few more questions at the end. We'll get to these notes here. So this is what apologetics should look like for us. We tell people, after we tell them what we believe, we say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pray that you would believe, just like you did with your friend. I'm going to pray that you would believe the revelation in the Old and New Testament. I'm going to pray that you believe it's true. And I'm going to pray that you believe in Jesus. That's where we start. We tell them, look, we don't have all the answers as Christians. We're not saying that. We don't have all the answers for marriage. If you join the church, your marriage might still fail. And your son's cancer may not be healed. And if you come to join the church and become a part of this ragtag group of Christians, then you will see an ugly side of the church that maybe you didn't think existed. Especially if you're in leadership. Right, Carl and Russ and Steve? And you'll see us fight over the color of the carpet in our sanctuary. And you'll see us complain and want to get our way and want our preferences. But we'll love you. We're messy, but we'll love you. We're broken and damaged, but we'll love you. And sometimes we won't love you at all. We're going to drop the ball a lot. We're sinners after all. What did you expect? See, the world appreciates this kind of honesty. That's what pagans are looking for and Christians are looking for in the church. It's honesty. Because we know we can't live out the ideal, right? The world does not expect us to live out the ideal. All the world wants is honesty. They don't want to see Pharisees. They've seen enough of that. Seen enough Christians yelling from their own private beaches. Y'all are bad people over there. They've seen enough of that. They want honesty. They want us to tell them what we believe and to be honest about our struggles. That's apologetics That's not coming from a rationalistic understanding. So apologetics for us is clearing up any misconceptions that the world might have about Christians. Offering the hope of the gospel and then just being real and not being fake. That's the kind of apologetics that can change a city, change a culture. That's the kind of apologetics that the apologists were doing in the second Century. So we'll look more at this next week. We'll actually look at a few of the major apologists' names you might have heard of. Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian. So I wanted to give you an idea of what they were facing in their day and then what led them to their writings before we look at their writings. Any final questions or comments? Mm-hmm. I mean, you might, but the, the main point is, it depends on what, if you're thinking reading evidence that demands a verdict is going to convert them, you know, like if I can just answer all their questions, like how old is the earth? I can answer that. That'll save them. I mean, have conversations if that stuff comes up. I mean, all those things, have those conversations. But if we think that just passing the right information onto them is going to convert them, that's not, gonna, that's not what happens. The gospel converts people. So I talk about Jesus. Talk about these things. Say, hey, you can read this book. Let's talk about it. But an unbeliever just reading that, you know, you can prove through history that Jesus lived. That information in and of itself will not convert someone. 
It, the, the gospel, the spirit is what converts. So I'm not saying don't have conversations. I mean, if you want to get someone to read a book, like The Case for Christ, something like that, let them read it. It might get their mind thinking. But if you're hoping, like, if they read this and get to the end, they'll become a Christian. Our hope is not in that. Our hope is in the gospel message. So, yeah. But it could plant a seed. It could plant a seed. It could start a conversation. But uh, if I remember in The Case for Christ, there was one that followed that. I think he tells the story about that guy that used to be with Billy Graham who's walked away. And, he, and Lee Strobel goes and interviews him. I can't remember his name. Charles Templeton, maybe. But he goes to talk with him. And this is a guy who has been exposed to all this information about what Christians believe. And he walks away. And so just getting the information per se is not what brings conversion. It's, it's getting the gospel and talking about Jesus. And sometimes you may have to say, okay, we're going to table the age of the earth. You know, scientists say this. Christians have a few viewpoints here. You think we're crazy. Sometimes you have to say, we're going to put that on the table. Let's talk about the gospel first. So I'm not saying don't have those conversations, but if you put your hope in the fact that crossing all your T's and dotting all your I's will be the thing that converts someone, I'm saying that's not what does. So does that help? Yeah. 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 yeah if there's a formula, we'd be using it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a formula that's what we'd be using it. Yeah. And I think because of rationalism, Christians have kind of taken that, you know, if I can just answer all their questions and present to them a Christian worldview, then that will be the thing that finally convinces them. But they're lost. I think Paul ran across that in Athens. Yeah. When he competed in theology or philosophy with those guys. And then he goes to Corinth and says, I came in turn trembling and determined to preach Christ. I mean, that's the formula. Preach Christ yeah. and him alone. Preach Christ and him crucified. And he gets to that. Amen. In Acts 17, he brings up, he says... God has, what well says there in Acts 17, he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. That was his main thing. He's talking about all these things. You've got these altars to the unknown God. I'm going to tell you who the real God is. He's not unknown. His name is Jesus. But he keeps coming back to Jesus and the resurrection. And then later he says, he brings up judgment. There's a fixed day on which God will judge the world in righteousness by a man who has been appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul keeps the main thing the main thing. So if you deviate and have a conversation... But come back. So, great point, Carl. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's pray. Father, we need your spirit to be able to engage with our friends and family and coworkers and neighbors and fellow students, uh, the baristas that we get our coffee from, um, the people who work at the grocery store where we buy our groceries. We need you to give us wisdom in how to engage them and how, how to help clear up what they may uh, believe about Christianity. And we need your help for us to keep the main thing the main thing and to keep coming back to the gospel. So help us not to trust in us and our wisdom and our rationalistic ways, but to depend upon the power of your spirit. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen.